This is Shannon in Durham. Chip in Durham. And Erica in Edmonton. And you're listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5, episode 36, There All the Honor Lies. I said thee. Thee. You may have said thee, but yes, I I have a formal apology to make, listeners, to the audio guide to Babylon 5. Yes, last week when I I gave homework, I said there all honor lies. Boy, oh boy, is there egg on my face. After all the the foo-fra I made over the indefinite article for a spider in the web, I go and forget the definite article for this one. I am just here slapping myself (laughs) in the face. The hush. We knew what she meant. <laughs> anyway, welcome one and all. Thank you, as always, for tuning in as we continue our way through the second season of Babylon 5, uh, one of our favorite science fiction shows out there. And we are back for Peter David's second turn in the writer's seat. Uh, so we had him back in Soulmates, which uh, we enjoyed a great deal. Um, admittedly, there was wine involved. Uh, this time it's a little <laughs> early for that. But um, we also have uh, a little more seriousness, I think, going on here, uh, even though uh, we are back with uh, essentially another mystery uh, that needs to be solved or untangled. Uh, and we'll figure out whether we do a better job with actually deciding who's the culprit and what's going on. Uh, but that also means that it is Peter David, and Peter David will throw in some very broad humor, as Peter David does. Um, any quick thoughts before we get into our recap? You know, if Peter David hadn't, uh, if if I hadn't known that Peter David wrote this, I probably wouldn't have guessed it. Because while there is, there are a few couple places of broad humor, I had trouble even writing notes because I was just so engrossed. So, yay. Okay. And uh, JMS's fingerprints are all over this episode, which true. we'll get into a little later. Very true. Okay, then let's get started. What you need to know. John Sheridan, captain of Babylon 5, is considered a hero of the Earth-Mimbari War by his people for managing to take out the flagship of the Mimbari fleet. The Mimbari would disagree, and many resent his appointment to leadership of a space station meant to act as neutral territory for peaceful negotiations. But for all its importance, EarthGov doesn't want to spend any more than it has to in their budget and is always looking for new ways to defray expenses. Londo Malari of the Centauri was appointed as an ambassador to Babylon 5 in order to get him out of the way and was given an aid with little status to show it. But things change over time. In this episode, Sheridan is attacked by a Mimbari and winds up killing him in self-defense with a conveniently dropped weapon. The diplomatic scandal gets worse when another Mimbari who witnessed the attack claims that Sheridan was the instigator. Both Garibaldi and Delenn arrange investigations, and Lanier is quickly caught between his position as Delenn's aide and his responsibility to defend the honor of the witness, a member of his clan. EarthGov puts on a show of cooperating by sending Sheridan a lawyer and agreeing to a trial if necessary, which would end Sheridan's career at the station. As the investigations continue, Malari points out that the famous Mimbari do not lie reputation isn't 100% accurate and Sheridan and his supporters are able to trick the witness into revealing a Mimbari clan's plot against him. Meanwhile, 
Veer receives news that he's being replaced as Malari's aide because the position is no longer a throwaway one, and he doesn't know how to react until Malari stands up and demands that he stay. And Kosh is keeping his end of the bargain to teach Sheridan more about the Vorlons, but in true Vorlon fashion. And EarthGov's budget committee is trying to create a new revenue stream with merchandise showcasing Babylon 5 as a brand, including a gift shop on the station. And that is There All the Honor Lies. So something to toss out to you guys as I was watching this when we usually are very quick to say, you know, this is kind of like a fairly unified plot or this has got a A plot and a B plot. This time I felt like we've got this one capital A, A plot, and then <laughs> all these lowercase B, C, and D plots. I think it worked for me, but it felt at times a little scattershot um, a couple of places that you had all these little bits popping up into uh, the major story. What did you guys think as you were watching? I actually I didn't feel the scattershotness at all. I thought that they all wove together very well. And I'm going to just jump right into some of Stephen's thoughts on this because I echo them as well. That just the direction was amazing in this episode. It is is so skillfully woven together. It just kind of cooks along. And yes, you do have this, you know, BC and D plot that are all kind of happening at the same time. But the way that the episode jumps back and forth between them didn't feel like jumping. It just it it felt like just checking in on a different part. There were, you know, it, it was some really smooth, neat camera motions within a scene and then you would get like a sound bridge an audio bridge from one to the next so you're watching one scene before the picture changes over to the next scene the sound actually changes a a brief second beforehand which is you know an editing trick that is used in a lot of places but hasn't been used in Babylon 5 as often as I think I would like because it kind of smooths things out for you so I felt like it was a much smoother episode than some others that only had two plots I totally agree. Uh, Until Shannon was reading her recap of the episode, I didn't realize. I I didn't. I thought that I was watching an episode of Babylon 5 and I didn't really identify an A plot or a B plot. And then Shannon goes through B, C and D. And (laughs) and, and, yeah, I completely missed that. There is an awful lot of stuff that happens and it happens in a very compact, very efficient manner. The Veer stuff doesn't take up a whole lot of screen time, but it's mm-hmm. powerful. Uh, Stephen yeah. First has a good performance, and he has some pretty good lines. Some of them, some of those lines are a little bit uh, overwritten, but still, by and large, you feel for the guy, and it's effective, and it's brief, and it's there. Um, the Babylon Emporium stuff is funny as heck. Some great gags inside the store itself culminating in the spacing of this poor defenseless bear <laughs> um the kosh stuff is a is an insert by jms uh i'm assuming that he thought the episode was running a little short and that is that is something that could be excised almost completely i think it i think it really could but it is a moment of beauty in the mm-hmm. story, uh, and I really like it. And then, and, it, and at a time when Sheridan kind of could use it. Yeah, exactly. Uh, mm-hmm. So it, it is, I guess, literally speaking, out of place. But I love the the, the tonal shift that happens with that. 
And then we have a solid Minbari plot. Uh, we haven't had a whole lot to do with the Minbari on the station because the Narncentari stuff has been sort of ramping up. We've had Delin's drama, but the word star killer is being thrown around again. And we're just brought all the way back to the beginning of the season when Sheridan stepped onto the station and the Minbari hated him. Uh, so I was not expecting, I, I did not remember this episode as well as I remembered Hunter Prey for obvious reasons, but <laughs> I wasn't expecting it to be as good. I think this is a superior script to Soulmates, which I enjoyed, but I didn't necessarily think was all that. You know, it was mm-hmm. it was it was fun and it was enjoyable. It wasn't necessarily the pinnacle of writing. I think that this is a strong episode, practically top to bottom. Yep, I I agree. And the uh, just the the feeling of all of all of these different different bits and pieces coming in together. I think I I noticed the Emporium part. Uh, it, it stood out to me a little bit more as being separate, but I think that's just because it was it was the funnier bit. But it it did lighten the mood in a way that didn't feel cheap and hacky for some reason. And mm-hmm. and yeah, and the Captain Sheridan stuff, which I I wouldn't have known was a last minute addition um, if you guys hadn't told me. It did feel like it belonged in this episode. Yes, you could take it out and it wouldn't actually make much of a difference. But I, I think putting it here is is, ex- is extra effective because of the way the story itself is affecting Sheridan. And it it struck me more as just this is the way that uh, life would be. This is the way that a space station would work. You're getting all of these different things happening in different different places and whereas some episodes feel more disjointed when they're giving us that this just flowed along yeah it's even actually sort of addressed in the dialogue of the show itself when garibaldi asks sheridan if he wants to get Ivanova involved in the investigation and sheridan actually says no let's keep her out of it we'll handle this you know this plot over there it's not going to intersect (laughs) right now okay and there's actually a decent reason for that so it actually makes sense in the story logic Mm -hmm. okay so we started this by mentioning uh direction this was uh michael vehar's second episode uh, we have seen him previously on the Geometry of Shadows, um, which I think uh, we thought was had some very strong directing bits in that one as well, if I remember correctly. Um, and he will go on to direct a whole lot of season three. So the, apparently the producers liked his work. Well, so did Steven, because as soon as he saw that, that, that that's who was directing this, he like punched the air. He was so excited. He said that <laughs> oh, Mike wow. Behar is his favorite Babylon 5 director and his favorite Deep Space Nine director. He actually, mm-hmm. just in watching Deep Space Nine, had noticed the direction on the episodes that Mike Behar had done there. And just, I mean, he, he couldn't even wait until the episode was over to be talking about what was going on. He'd be like, look at that camera move. <gasps> look at all those rack focuses. I mean, he was a kid in a friggin' candy store. He was so excited about this. So, so he is very, I, he, he didn't, you know, he doesn't like to look ahead at stuff, but he wanted to know how many more episodes um, to, he had to look forward to. And I was like, he does 14 Lots. in total. So Lots. you've got 12 yeah. more coming and he's very happy. Okay. Um, so yeah, so yeah, a strongly directed episode, um, a more strongly written episode from uh, Peter David. Um, I think one of the things also that helps this um, episode flow more than Soulmates did is we've got a whole lot more continuity calls 
to play with, both specific events and the general feel. Like Chip mentioned, um, we are back to the Earth Mimbari tensions. Um, as Chip said, Starkiller is being thrown around again. We haven't heard Sheridan called that for many episodes. But we've also got all of these other tensions in the Earth Mimbari dynamic. Uh, we've got um, the Mimbari are basically scoffing at humans as being, you know, dishonorable and uh, dirty fighters. And this took me aback for a second. Sheridan is supposed to have learned a little bit more about the Mimbari. He's supposed to be a bit more enlightened, and yet Garibaldi asks him to describe the Mimbari, bald head and a bone. It's like, dude, Ugh. come on, you're a little more professional than that. We have, again, uh, Delenn's issues are back to the forefront. We thought maybe that she was beginning to move beyond them after being removed from the Great Council, especially, had sort of found her place again. But no, now she's got more Mimbari basically refusing to even deal with her. <laughs> have we made any progress? <laughs> you know, the, the the Sheridan thing, not being able to describe a Mimbari either. Like, as soon as Garibaldi asked him, you know, to describe it, and then there's this little dramatic pause, I was just like, my shoulders went up towards my ears and I was cringing. And I mean, it could have been worse, but still mm-hmm. just the fact that he, he gives this, you know, it, it, you know, Stephen just kind of muttered from next to me, they all look alike, you know, because mm-hmm. he was, Stephen was having the same reaction to that moment. And, and we were both kind of like, oh, no. But I... Maybe it's just me wanting to be an apologist for Sheridan, but the the fact that he has been put in this you know awful situation where he's clearly been set up and he didn't do anything wrong and now he's he's going up the river for it. Uh, Granted, I, I I thought maybe this was just supposed to show that he has he's been put on his back foot a little bit. This is one of the characters that we have shown that you know knows more about Mimbari culture, and suddenly he even he's acting this way. That that mm-hmm. shows what a tight spot he's in. But then there's a part of me that's like, mm, you're just. I think that's oh. a moment where the the hand of the writer just can't resist. It's a bit mm-hmm. of a gag that works on one level and just doesn't on another level. Yeah, I mean, I, I, granted, I can understand the frustration. I can understand, you know, wanting to, you know, bite at somebody because of the situation he's in. But it also doesn't feel like Sheridan at that moment. So, yeah. My favorite thing about this whole about this whole plot this a plot is Lanier Mm -hmm. Lanier is so strong in this episode he 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 looks like he's completely lost the I'm the 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 character who wouldn't look up anymore even when he was looking up he was still looking down you know um he's defending Delenn he is terse he is a fighter he is decisive there is toughness, there is steel in Bill Mooney's performance that I do not recall from a previous episode. And it feels like a natural progression for the character. Um, I also like that, especially right at the beginning, uh, in the initial stages of the investigation, Delenn's caught on a back foot here because this guy that she thought that she knew and was coming to respect after that great conversation about... Uh, about uh, how to help the Narn refugees. He may well have murdered Aminbari. This could be really, really bad. And she and Lanier put the Minbari first. And it's a real fault line between uh, the, between Earth and the Minbari on the station. Um, I, I, I really like the drama in that. 
There's drama all over the place here, and I could not agree more about uh, Bill Movie's per- performance as Lanier. I think that it is a natural progression. I feel like he has, you know, he arrived on the state on the on the station not being able to look up because he held Delenn just in this position so high, and he still does. But now the rest of the the Minbari are not holding her into that position, and I feel like there's a part of him that sees it as his responsibility to to step up because you know she's not able to get stuff done as much as well as she was before, and it's sort of him expanding to fill the space, so to speak. Mm-hmm. And I just love seeing him do that. It's just like you know he's he's spreading his wings and flying from the nest a, a little bit yeah and when we last saw him uh, in a in a combat situation um it was kind of for laughs we just oh mm-hmm. hey it's a barroom brawl and we suddenly find out that uh <laughs> lanier's an ass kicker um <laughs> yeah, nope. but this time around i think this is the this is the first fight scene that we've had with him or not even really a fight scene but the mm-hmm. he's got to be the heavy and he is and it's effortless helped along a little bit by uh some quality falling down uh per <laughs> acting by jeff conaway but uh he's tough he is tough love that I- i'll admit the, the the crossed arms thing felt a little cheesy to me but i, I agree with the general sentiment that this gives lanier it, it puts him in a hugely difficult position because on the one hand, he is loyal to Delenn. And on the other hand, as we learn through this episode, we get a whole lot more Minbari culture in this episode. In this episode, We knew that there were clans uh, all the way back in Legacies. We learned something about the clan structure and how it works. But now we get a feel for just how encompassing this structure is for the Minbari and how much it kind of limits them that they have to um, put clan first before their own desires, um, which, you know, may be yet another reason besides actually physically changing that everyone's so mad at Delenn because when she chose to defy the Grey Council and defy everything, she was, they see her as doing it for herself. Uh, so I, th- mm-hmm. I think that we learn a whole lot more in this episode. And we've got, as I was saying, Lanier on the one hand loyal to Delenn, and on the other hand, he's trying to be loyal to his clan. Uh, which he also holds in great esteem. Uh, so, yeah, he's, he's got to be tough. I also like the way that we get the reveal about the Mimbari perspective on lying to save another's face and things like that. Mm-hmm. Who's the guy who helps Sheridan connect those dots? It's Londo, mm-hmm. who, who, who tells him the story about that subplot in The Quality of Mercy. Which also had to do with uh, Centauri attributes, but I guess we'll get there a little later. Yeah. Uh, but uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's good. It's good story structure to have an answer drop in your lap uh, from some other source. Yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. and and uh, and that Londo Londo's in a position to say that, and you know, this is a this is a bit of a I wouldn't say a redemption episode for Londo, but it does show that he's not totally a monster uh, it softens him a little it, it softens him a little mm-hmm. you could also say that maybe it suits his purposes to uh put the bug in sheridan's ear that no you can't always trust 100 percent what that aminbari is mm-hmm. telling you the truth <laughs> but still yeah uh, it's it is it is kind of neat that we get that callback an effortless callback you don't have you're not missing anything if you didn't see the quality of mercy um he says mm-hmm. that a, a minbari wants saved face for a centauri and you know 
you know that he's talking about himself and that's everything that you need to know. But yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The other interesting, another interesting thing about this uh, subplot or this A plot is uh, we get, and, you know, unfortunately we don't get to see a whole lot of her, but a familiar face is back to be Sheridan's lawyer, supposedly come storming in to save the day, although she doesn't actually do very much. But um, that's what Natoff looks like. The original Natoff looks like without makeup. Uh, that's mm-hmm. Julie Caitlin Brown uh, coming storming in uh, as Sheridan's lawyer. Um, and I, I, I have to admit it, much of her performance, I was just sort of like, yeah, that's a human Natoff. <laughs> she was very <laughs> Even, forceful, very forward, very driving with her delivery. Yeah. So, yeah. Even without the makeup and stuff, she was still tougher than our current Natoth was what I kept thinking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but, oh, what a waste of a strong actress. Um, mm-hmm. She comes in. It's, it it kind of reminds me of Richard Maul in last last time's episode. Um, strong actor, strong performance the role doesn't have all that much to accomplish in the episode. And so all of that energy feels wasted. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And Stephen was incensed when he saw her name in the credits as not Natoth. He was just like, <laughs> what? She can't come back as someone else. You can't effing leave and come back as someone else. He was he was not I, having it. Yeah, I didn't I didn't get the chance to research it. I think there was something about a contract thing where she like owed the program another episode or something so they worked with her mm. uh to get that taken care of with a different character i think that's what happened but i'm not 100 percent certain i may be making that up <laughs> well you know this we are talking about fiction here so you know yeah <laughs> true yeah but um that was also it's a little interesting that EarthGov was you know ready to sort of throw sheridan under the bus over this after he was supposedly santiago's man and santiago's choice it feels a bit like EarthGov is trying everything it can to sort of stay out of intergalactic politics these days. I mean, there we've seen the the xenophobic streaks sort of growing among the general population. There's been con- comments here and there this season about Earth getting back to worrying about humans rather than all of these other people. And this feels a little bit more like the same coming from the government. As Sheridan said to Delenn, governments deal in convenience not principle and it would be more convenient to get sheridan out of the way who although clark did tend to think that sheridan was his kind of guy still the opportunity to handpick your own guy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that's true Especially after, you know, Bester came in a while back and was surprised at how not cooperative Sheridan kind mm-hmm. of was. And then we had actually we just had Clark's uh, personal, um, his intelligence officers or whatever come in and, just and you know, episode, yeah. maybe didn't have the best uh, best interaction with Sheridan and reported back to Clark. So maybe they were just kind of like, well, this guy is not quite as malleable as we thought. So we'll just cut him loose. I don't know. <laughs> Quite possible, yeah. Is there anything else we can think of as far as our A-plot? Um, it is kind of stagey how uh, we have the resolution in the end, the doors open, and then the four people uh, step step <laughs> in, and things like that. It's- stagey, but so fun. Like, that was just, that was one of those moments that just felt like a real payoff. I just, yeah, I punched the air a little bit. So, <laughs> so yes, yes, stagey. But for me, it was stagey in, in the best way. The cheesy, yes, but I love cheesy. Okay. 
speaking of stagey, we've got Sheridan talking to, to Kosh, and that's kind of very stagey, given how Kosh doesn't really move. He just sort of stands there. Um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, we have uh, apparently the lessons have started, and I don't know when this turned from an exchange, as Sheridan was asking for the last couple of episodes, into Kosh teaching Sheridan. But I think that happened... I think that happened immediately because yeah, when, I, I when Sheridan you about asked yourself, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, Sheridan's like an exchange of information and Kosh kind of says nothing. And then, and then he's like, I will, you know, I will teach you mm-hmm. about yourself. Yeah. So but yeah, Kosh is, he, he, he gets pretty demandy and, you know, he goes in there and it's like, all right, come. And Sheridan's mm-hmm. like, I'm dealing with 6 million things here. No, come. Uh, and then of all things to take him to discover this, um, this uh, population of, of monks or some kind of religious uh, figures hiding in the very worst part of down below and yet able to sing and produce the moment of beauty that Kosh wanted to show him. I love the ambiguity of this thing. Um, The, the staging, the staging is beautiful. Um, even though it suffers a little bit, whatever for whatever reason, this is one of the spots on the DVD where we're getting a transfer instead of film um, I don't know what kind of optical effects might have been done to it, but it's unearthly. We don't know if these cloaked figures are alien or human. We don't even entirely know if they're real. You know, it could mm-hmm. be, you know, Kosh sitting out there, inclining his head a little bit to the to the music. It's a, it's a Latin chant. According to the Lurker's Guide, it's a Gregorian chant, part of the Christmas Mass. I, and yet this doesn't look at all Catholic. It doesn't look at all, it it looks alien, unearthly. So I don't know exactly what's going on here, even if I'm paying a whole lot of attention. It's, there's something mystical that's happening in this moment. It is beautiful. It is unearthly. It is just a little unsettling. Um, And it may have been entirely in Sheridan's head all along. But I love the scene afterward when he's in the elevator with Kosh and uh, he and he's happy and he's grateful and he thanks Kosh. Kosh steps out. Ivanova steps in. They talk and she says, well, you're already now you're talking like a Vorlon. And he just sort of looks back at her. You know, it's a it's a great little payoff. It is thematically helpful to the episode. Doesn't advance a plot at all, really. But I still love it. Okay. Yeah, and I also speaking of Ivanova and Sheridan, um, just as an aside, since it's not, it doesn't really fit into any plot particularly. I love the scene between Sheridan and Ivanova in Sheridan's quarters. It's just, it's still those two as a a friendship duo. They they play off of each other so warmly and so nicely that just every scene that they have together, that's just the two of them interacting as both as a commander and his second in command, and as two old friends. It just it works for me every time. They they did mm-hmm. it right. God, if they hadn't established early on that she already knew Sheridan, Mm -hmm. this season would have been such a slog, wouldn't it? Yes. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's way too much to have that kind of dynamic from like, you know, Garibaldi and Sheridan and Garibaldi having to learn to trust Sheridan. If if Ivanova had to repeat that, too, it, it would have thrown everything out of balance. So, yeah, I think it's very helpful that they did establish that uh, they had worked together before. Uh, what did Stephen think of uh, the Kosh stuff? He said leadingly. 
Um, you know, he didn't actually say very much about it. And I didn't, you know, I, I never want to prod too much about any particular thing because I don't want him to get the idea that I'm asking for any particular reason. So mm-hmm. <laughs> with a show with such a big arc like this, I'm always a little bit afraid of asking specific questions because, you know, what if he thinks it's going to lead to something really important and then it doesn't? Or mm-hmm. or what if it really is? So, so he didn't really say anything about that part, but he seemed interested. Okay. I'm just, you know, you, you you know me. We've we've been talking mm-hmm. about uh, Stephen's um, irritation with the Vorlon. <laughs> yes, mm-hmm. he did not. He did not swear at Kosh this time, actually. So maybe that's a step <laughs> in in some direction. <laughs> okay. Taking a quick look, um, we've talked of for a couple of moments already, uh, but with Veer and Londo, um, where we we find out that we, we've already seen Londo move from uh, laughing stock, uh, shuffled off to an unimportant uh, throwaway position as ambassador of Babylon Five, and how, thanks to his sudden connections with Space Mob and so forth, that has changed. Now we've got um, sort of a mini repetition with Veer. Because Veer was introduced as just, you know, Londo's aide. Londo didn't want him. Londo knew that he was getting some ineffectual little little guy uh, to boss around. And their relationship has gradually moved to where Veer's one of the few people that'll tell Londo to his face when he's screwing up. But <laughs> even as he can't do anything about it. But we find out that Apparently, Centauri Prime thinks Londo deserves somebody better now, and they want to remove Veer from office. And now Veer doesn't know which way to go. Um, I, I loved these bits. Uh, what about you it, guys? I adore this so much. I actually, part of me likes just from a, a structural scripting standpoint, I like the fact that we have a little bit of a mirror going on between um, Linear and Veer, which we've seen a little bit before, but this seems mm-hmm. even stronger. As Steven said at the end of the episode when he was talking about it, he said, it's kind of like the rise of the flunkies with Lanier and Veer both sort of stand, stepping to the fore uh, in this case. I, uh-huh. this, the, in particular, the scene uh, after after Veer has had two whole drinks at the bar yes. and Londo comes Holding up to four fingers. Him. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Laughed out loud. Oh, I, I I I liked the fact that first of all that Veer actually just comes out and addresses the awfulness of what Londo has done and what has been going mm-hmm. on and how he's been having to to tamp this down inside and how it's affected him and then also going on to to talk about just his problems fitting in in life. I mean, mm-hmm. that's kind of I mean, it's kind of like red meat to a show that's aimed towards nerds like me uh, because I have to guess that a big proportion of the population watching this show was like me and didn't really fit in particularly well through most of their life and was kind of an outcast. And that is, I just, my heart ached for him because I knew exactly what he felt like. That whole scene, I couldn't even take notes. I couldn't drag my eyes away from it. So I just... I, I love that little that little part, and then the fact that that you know Veer is getting some more screen time and, and putting forth such a great performance from Stephen first. It was just it was a it was a home run for me. Yeah, um, I I even have to give credit to the casting director for um, the uh, Minbar. I mean the Centauri flunky who calls looking for Londo, and then mm-hmm. when Veer says Londo's not here, he gets a smirk. Yeah, yeah, he yes. does. He because he knows he doesn't he 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 doesn't like he doesn't respect Veer. Hammer's going to fall down on this guy. This is going to be good. He's taking taking pleasure in the moment, you know, mm-hmm. which is you know further illustration of just how sucky Veer's situation is right now. 
Yeah, it's 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 a it's a strong performance by Stephen First. Uh, strong scripted bits. I like I like his brief interaction with Talia uh, when he's when he's kind <laughs> of you know. Um, and uh, I Stephen, like S- Stephen mentioned that too. He was so excited to see the telepath back, and then at the end of the episode, he was like, "She was literally there to have a drink spilled on her. That smells <laughs> of contractual <laughs> obligation." That was what he said. Yeah, um, uh, but at the uh, that that wonderful scene with Veer and Londo at the bar, you get this nice mixture of some really scripty bits about him being caught between fire and flood, and then he's re- reduced to just saying, I'm sorry, he tries to find some more words, he fails, he says, I'm sorry again a few times, mm-hmm. and he, he just sort of shuffles off. It's, it's, it's very well done, very mm-hmm. affecting. And... As as we, I was thinking that what probably prompted this was not just people noticing uh, Londo's star on the rise. I bet you a certain Lord Rifa was really put out with how little respect Veer showed him um, a few episodes ago. I wouldn't be surprised. Yeah, that's a good point. So what about Londo, you know, Londo being such a nice guy to Veer? And uh, and being so helpful to Sheridan, you know, I did ask before, you know, is not quite a redemption arc, but, you know, we did. I think the I think the helping Sheridan was just sort of, I know something you don't kind of, you know, (laughs) that that it struck me, you know, yes, it was helpful, but also, you know, okay, you don't you've got this wrong and I need to correct this um, is how it struck me Um, as far as on the side with Veer, there's the possibility that you know londo feels like veer is you know he he has noticed veer is the one person who will at least tell him to his face i don't like what you're doing and be totally honest about it um i think i think londo wants to hang on to that factor in his life um as well as the fact is if he gets a brand new assistant um that's yet another person he's going to have to explain a whole lot of things to that he may he not be able to actually trust. To. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. With Veer, yeah. he has someone he knows he can trust. Even if he's not happy or willing to go along with everything Londo's doing, Londo can trust him. Yeah. Plus, he's already got a whole bunch of... Well, he's got a lot of Londo's secrets. And he, if he goes off somewhere else, I mean, if we want to be cynical about Londo, maybe he's thinking that maybe I don't want to send all of my secrets off someplace unhappy. Mm-hmm. There's that, and I also wonder how much Londo was really risking, how much he was really, is he powerful enough that his statement that he would leave if mm-hmm. if they made Veer leave, was it just him calling their bluff because he knew there was no way in heck they were going to make him leave? Yes, yes, it was. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't think, I mean, we're talking about an aide here, somebody who, you know, was put in the position in the first place just because it's not that, it wasn't that important of a posting. And I just, I, I don't think that, that Londo was ever in any danger of, of losing face in any way for, you know, people, I mean, unless the Centauri system is very different from most of the others, uh, I don't think somebody getting to pick their own assistant is that big of a deal. Okay, and then we've got our last uh, of our uh, minor plot threads. Uh, apparently, there's a gift shop on Babylon 5 now. That, it's that time for merchandise. <laughs> <laughs> oh, 
I love this so much. It just it makes me laugh. Steven Steven said he wants a B5 Emporium teddy bear. And I was like, I would be on board with that. I don't usually Thank like you. cluttering Thank the apartment you. with you more see, stuff. Chip? But you see, Chip, oh, I actually yeah. went. It's the Vermont Teddy Bear Company. I actually went and started poking around. Now, this is 20 years later and the options are a little bit different. But Peter David actually, um, he and his wife uh, went and and custom made this bear as a Christmas <laughs> gift for Straczynski. J.S. referring to John to Joe and, Straczynski, not John, yeah, John Sheridan. Not 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 intentionally John Sheridan, but Straczynski <laughs> flew back with. I don't do cute. I'm getting you for this. I don't do cute. And Straczynski wrote the tag with the bear <laughs> at the end of the episode after Peter David had turned in the script of spacing that the bear. And is it has turned. And it, oh, it's it, pe- it, people. Google Peter David Babylon 5 Bear, and you will find Peter David's side of the story in his blog, where he explains um, how this started with the Christmas gift and how it turned into a running gag between the two of them for, for several years in a row, because Peter David managed to get another bear without the jacket and the hat um, and put it into his other show, uh, Space Cases, the children's show. So the, 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 the kids apparently run into this bear floating in space and the kids all whine and complain, who would space a teddy bear? And they learn that it's this evil race called the Strazinks. That's awesome. Yeah. And, and it turned into things where at conventions where people would bring JMS bears at conventions and things like that. Um, it, it's delightful. Can so. we stop with the love affair with teddy bears here? No. In this what? in this podcast i will be playing the role of john sheridan and j michael straczynski of course you will. i don't even like teddy bears that much but i thought it was funny <laughs> i thought it was cute i thought hey, it was Yvonne cute was, too but one of us smiled at the bear the funniest part was when they spaced the bear oh the see funniest... i disagree i didn't i honestly didn't think that was so funny i, I kind of rolled my eyes and was like hmm Okay. I thought the bear, the existence of the bear was the funny part. The spacing of it did nothing for me. Yeah, it was just another contractual obligation to get Keffer into the episode. That was his best <laughs> acting job of the entire <laughs> Actually, season. It was, yes, You're it right. was a very good reaction. It was very good. I'm sorry, the, 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 the thump of a teddy bear hitting up against a <laughs> cockpit. That's comedy. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll give you the Keffer acting. That was that was definitely the best Keffer uh, Keffer scene we had so far. <laughs> but um, but that's like that's the tail end. I mean, that doesn't even get into the the presence of this store and the issues that uh, a certain ambassador has over merchandising, um, and um, how and how certain things are made. Sight gags with masks. Yeah, that, oh, that scene was, was fantastic. Yes. I was, I mean, and I mean, the, just the the scene itself, the writing of it was was very good. It was a wonderful idea, and then the staging of it and the direction of that was just another feather in Mike Behar's cap because the way that the camera kind of pans over and then you see in the mirror, oh, it was just very well done. Mm-hmm. Do you gift wrap? <laughs> <laughs> um, and that opening line right there before the tag. This isn't some deep space franchise. This place means something, you know. Oh the the meta was eating its own tail. It was so meta. <laughs> and the, the the irony here is that b- compared to the Star Trek franchises and everything else, Babylon Five was always starved for merchandise. 
You had micro machines and some uh, action figures that you only saw in comic book shops and some plastic models. And that was kind of pretty much it. So, you know, there's a certain amount of there's a certain that. Yeah, you're right about the meta, but there's a certain amount of envy there. And all of the Mm -hmm. all of that lovely, lovely merchandise revenues that Babylon 5 could have had, but didn't. Well, it still did. They only got rid of the, the gift shop on the station. I don't think they got rid of the, the concept that, you know, in the rest ah. of the um, Earth Alliance. Who knows? Because this was going to be everywhere. I hadn't thought about that. But yes, now I like the idea that there are more little outposts like that, you know, on sp- spaceports on Earth and Mars and Io. Oh, yes, that's delightful to me. <laughs> I, I still want to order a custom teddy bear. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Okay. Um, can we think you of... You know, again, Bab Bear Lawn 5. Come on, guys. Yeah. Come on. Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Come on. <laughs> no, no, no. You got the intonation wrong. Yeah. You, Chip, what are you saying? You love puns. You love puns more than anybody. Teddy This bear. is right up your alley. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, Teddy Bear puns is where the line is drawn. <laughs> oh, goodness. Um, but... As I was about to say, anything else that we can think of uh, as far as this episode and what's come before? Uh, we mentioned how continuity heavy it is. It rewards people remembering points of departure, quality of mercy, um, the the arc with Londo and Veer and their development. It, it just it really works very well. I think it um, blends in much better, whether um, this was Peter David learning from experience or the fact that JMS did stick his fingers in more into this episode, but it does fit more seamlessly than Soulmates did. It does. It's not as arc progressing an episode as Hunter Prey was, as we talked about last time, uh, but it still fits and it's very, very nice. Yeah. I, the one other thing that I just wanted to mention was another sort of scene, personal scene that echoes another personal scene. Um, so we had Veer spilling his heart out and making me making me feel bad for him because I was a high school student who felt like that all the time. Um, but then also uh, Delenn's scene talking about, mm-hmm. you know, uh, Sheridan says it's you know, scary to be all alone in the night. And she said, you know, the only thing that's worse is being all alone in a crowd. Absolutely. So it felt like there's there's a lot of of uh, sort of isolation coming out in this episode, and there's some pathos, and it mm-hmm. really worked very well. So, thumbs up, thumbs up for for all of that. Um, and then I will just close by saying Stephen's wrap up at the end was that he he really liked it. Uh, he said it was a good story, but it was it was made, and then he trailed off because he couldn't think of a word that was good enough. I think, uh, but he said it's like there are two different shows. There's the show. Um, and then there's the show when Mike Vehar is directing it. He's like, I don't hate it or anything normally. He said, but sometimes it just doesn't seem as polished. Um, but in this mm-hmm. case, it is polished very, very well. So uh, so he was, he was on board. He was a fan. All right. Uh, then I guess with that, we will prepare to uh, jump into spoiler space. Uh, for those of you who are watching the first time through, this is where you get off and put the podcast away for a while. Uh, we thank you, as always, for uh, finding out about this show and trying it with us. Uh, homework for next time is, and now for a word. So uh, we will be watching uh, that episode next. As always, you can check us out uh, online. Our website is b5audioguide.com, where we have our chat threads, where people can discuss episodes um, after, after they've seen them. Uh, whether they are spoiler full or spoiler free, 
you can take your pick. Uh, we are also available on Twitter and Tumblr at B5 Audio Guide if you prefer to chat that way. Uh, so come and see us. And now we will head for our jump gate. And we're back. You know, I had to absolutely clutch my hand to my mouth to keep myself from blurting out, well, what happens to all those Babylon 5 gift shops once they secede? <laughs> Good point. You know, I was thinking that too, but I managed to also not say it. So high five, Chip. Yeah, that, I, I had not thought that far ahead. Good. Spoiler, yes. cl- spoiler cop, high five. Indeed. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I, I get the feeling with this um, episode that lots of more seeds being planted, I think, is, is our usual metaphor. Um, there's a lot of things that I think will continue to echo um, down the line, especially with people's relationships and uh, what's going to be happening with them uh, in the future. Uh, the first thing that I li- listed in the show notes was um, Sheridan and Delenn. So we've got like uh, a really serious conversation between them. As you all said, pre-spoiler, you know, Delenn talks about, you know, being alone in a crowd versus, you know, shared experience of being, you know, alone and isolated. But I think this is the first time she really starts opening up to him, not directly saying, you know, that all the things that have happened to her government. She's hinted that um, she no longer has the power she once was. But this is where she really expresses some of her fear about her situation, I think. It's a pivotal episode for them because it could have gone all completely south with this mm-hmm. thing, and she can see that. They don't necessarily see each other as uh, objects of romantic affection yet, although I think that we've sort of had some hints of that possibly with the mm-hmm. dinner date and all this other stuff. But this guy that she trusts that she is going to bring into the shadow war and all this other stuff. Wait a minute. Maybe he's just a murderer. She oh, doesn't want to believe it. Uh, ultimately, she decides that she doesn't, uh, which makes the prospect of Ashan uh, lying um, all the more troubling to her. But uh, it's sort of a ebb and flow to their relationship, and it starts to ebb seriously at the beginning of this episode before it bounces back yeah i i i'm the, the thing that i kind of noticed amongst that relationship was actually lanier's sort of i don't want to say part in it because he didn't have a part of it but his reaction to sheridan was much more or much less inclined to to trust him and be forgiving and he was very just sort of straight-faced and and ramrod straight about the whole thing um mm-hmm. And and I, I I keep watching every time we have a Lydia episode that has anything to do mm-hmm. with Sheridan. I keep watching for seeds and hints of of you know this deep deep feeling that he just you know resents him so much uh, that that things happen you know that, that he's able to try to kill him later. And I mean I I, I don't know if it's ever if there are enough seeds for me to to mm-hmm. buy that it has grown to that point but every time i see something like this i kind of go oh okay like there was there was a hint of it even all the way back here yeah there's definitely more than a hint of sort of the hero worship kind of side of him and yeah. with, with regard to the lynn i also noticed the how offended both he and the lynn were especially linear uh mm-hmm. when sheridan accused ashan of lying Yes. Um, you know, 
Lanier is shocked and pissed. And Delin's, you know, for your sake, will ignore that. And so will you, Lanier, you know. But, mm-hmm. you know, Sher- Sheridan just sort of leaped over a line there. And Lanier's not happy at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I also noticed, I wasn't sure whether this would have been something to bring up pre-spoiler, but the fact that Delin's government basically... She's in a position where they'll use her if it suits their purposes. Like, they've given her the authority to conduct a second investigation on top of Garibaldi's. Um, You know, they have said, you know, do this. Um, You know, we're going to support this. We want this answered. So I kind of got a feeling, you know, that that Delenn was really feeling, uh, once again, after an episode or two where things seemed to be going the right way, but the fact that uh, her transformation has caused... Um, all of this grief. Um, I think that's part of the reason that she um, started opening up a bit to Sheridan about uh, exactly how she's feeling without without giving away too much yet. Yeah, that was, I, I mean, Sean's line, you know, I answer to other Minbari, mm-hmm. not freaks. That's cold. Yeah. Like, that's got to, that's got to leave a mark on your soul for sure. Yeah. And anything else sort of looking forward as far as caution, Sheridan? Uh, one thing I noticed this time was uh, when the uh, first figure puts out the bowl asking Sheridan for a donation. And, of course, he's just like, I don't carry cash. What have I got? He actually takes off, you know, even though it doesn't seem to mean that much of, to him as far as a practical piece because he's got replacements. But that's the symbol of his office that he's taking off and putting away in order to go forward with the experience that, that Kosh is asking him to experience. Oh, mm-hmm. wow. I didn't think of that. Yeah, yeah, this is, you know, future Echo. He's he's following Kosh, and, you know, this time he doesn't take off the entire uniform, but we'll get there. We'll get yeah. there. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, and he, and he gives up so much over the course of this series. He gives up his command. He gives up all but 20 years of his remaining life. You know, he has to sacrifice so much in the course of this story. And that's that's the first hint of it. I think so, yeah. And also, um, I didn't go into it much, uh, but other than uh, with the EarthGov, um, apparently, considering Sheridan not quite as important as before, I have to wonder if this is a hint that uh, some people are beginning to realize that something might be going on. Are people, are people back in EarthGov uh, on Clark's side, becoming aware of Haig's conspiracy and of his investigations, because we just had a pretty big episode last episode where Sheridan and his crew eventually wound up hiding this important witness and and rescuing him from uh, from being taken back by the government. And what does EarthGov do? They turn around and are showing themselves willing to cut Sheridan loose. I think that's firmly in the realm of headcanon. I don't know that okay. there's anything. <laughs> I don't know that there's anything on screen to to support that because I tend to feel that if they if they were suspecting something, uh, I, I just feel like they would have moved in a more overt way. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I'm not sure that they can yet. I mean, Sheridan so far has you know pretty much been running things fairly well. Um, but I think between mm-hmm. this first hint of you're not as important as we once considered you and if i remember correctly with and now for a word the next episode where this journalist pretty much spends the entire and the entire episode trying to tear down what babylon 5 has built for itself i i I think we might be seeing the start of that movement 
That's possible. I, it, and it's been a while since I've seen and now for a word. My my memory, and correct me if I'm wrong, is more that they are what they're trying to tear down is the the equality between all of the races and mm-hmm. trying to support the Earth First movement. Yeah, but um, since Babylon so. Five's the perfect symbol of intergalactic equality, so they they want to try and prove that it's not working. So I suppose pulling down its uh, its leader might be uh, another mm-hmm. step. Maybe. Maybe. I, I will say that we would know a whole lot more about EarthGov's perspective on Sheridan throughout this crisis if we knew where the hell the lawyer came from. That's, ah, yeah. Yeah. All we know is that EarthDome diverted her and sent her. Well, yeah. we don't we don't and we don't even really know who in EarthDome. Right. Is she supposed to report? Is she really supposed to represent him, or is she representing the uh, Earth Dome itself? You know, it's it's left murky, and I, you know, it's it's another example of sort of criminally underusing the talent that you've got there. Mm-hmm. But yeah, uh, and yeah. you know, if they if they were really trying to to you know get rid of him, would they even bother sending a lawyer? Who knows? I mean, if if her part had been more fleshed out, maybe we would have an idea if this was really supposed to help or hurt. But yeah, we we don't actually get even that. Yeah, they could have diverted. Uh, they could have diverted an interim um, military figure over there to take command of the station and uh, send. Uh, you know, like they like they did with Ari Benzane um, in first season. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. Mm-hmm. A little more, a little more perfunctory about it. You're a problem. You're, uh, you're, you're relieved of command. Mm-hmm. True. One tiny little note: uh, we we were wrong back when we talked about Revelations and uh, Sheridan's sister, and we said that we never, ever, ever even hear of her spoken again. Okay, we were wrong. Sheridan wants a baseball cap for her, but then I think that's it. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even catch yeah. that. <laughs> Yeah, that that was annoying. That, that had me looking up and perking up and going like, can't even, you know, say Elizabeth, my sister, can't, you know, nothing like that. Um, the last thing, is there anything else, um, like, especially with uh, Vera and Londo, as far as going forward, we mentioned briefly how Londo probably doesn't want to have to go through training somebody new in his in, uh, involvement with Morden. Uh, especially as uh, very soon down the knob in like two two or three more episodes, there's going to be massive movement on that front. Yeah. Well, next season, in part because Stephen First had uh, some other jobs that he wanted to do, Veer will take the position as Centauri ambassador to Minbar. Mm-hmm. And he'll be off for a few episodes. Um, and that highlights just how alone Londo becomes at that point. So it's kind of nice that we get this moment of uh, Londo standing up for Veer and vice versa um, and, you know, being good for each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. So when Veer leaves, you know, that leaves Londo at, uh, at more loose ends and it sort of illustrates just how dark a place that he's gotten to. Yeah, and I think I, it flows really well off of this episode, too, because, you know, Veer never comes to the strong decision that he wants to stay. His his problem is that he just doesn't know where he fits and he doesn't know what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. So it's Londo in the end that makes a decision to convince him to stay. And he's happy about that. And he does. But he has still never stepped up and taken a stand and decided on anything. So later on, when we get him making the decision to, you know, yes, I'm going to go to Minbar and, and be an ambassador, that's... 
uh, it fits right in with with his character just kind of you know going with the flow a little bit to see where he belongs and of course yes you're right showing Londo without Veer is it's <laughs> it's just poor poor Londo except you brought it on yourself yeah but poor Londo also note that Veer while he's on Mimbar sets up uh you know a, a, an essentially an underground railroad to uh get Narn refugees to safety um mm-hmm. and before any of this stuff um, after the after the Narn are uh, forced to surrender, and that wonderful, painful scene in the elevator with the mm-hmm. uh, Veer and Jakar, and Veer apologizes to Jakar, and Jakar asks if he can what what can what Veer say to, to the, the dead? dead? Yeah, Veer is crying that he there was nothing that he could do. I'm sorry, and ultimately Veer has to make some decisions. And mm-hmm. this is the guy who is one day going to be emperor. Yes, yep. exactly. Yeah, I, I I was thinking a bit watching this. Um, if if Londo's motives not only you know keep the person who already knows all of the things that I'm doing, but if Londo was trying to find like a shred of of of, of the good guy he used to be way back when by helping you know this poor kid along by you know keeping him in this place where he's got the chance to grow you know talking to his family and you know insisting on what a great person veer is and how um how important he is to londo how um how well he works for londo um slightly undercutting it by apparently inviting all of veer's family to visit but (laughs) (laughs) thank god we never get that that payoff thank god we never get that payoff no that would be terrible but i think it's very i think it's very indicative of the relationship between londo and veer because you know especially starting off with londo just being kind of a drunken lout and veer doing most of the work for him i think uh you know veer has has become a little bit of a mother hen figure in a way and i like the idea that londo knows exactly what veer's reaction is is going to be to having his family around and just wants mm-hmm. to like poke him a little bit. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think he, you know, he, he he needs he needs to poke again. After all, you know, he had that that silly doll that that basically removed all of his attributes. Oh right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. I think that was, that may have been the best line in the whole show with uh, Ivanova um, having to change gears in the middle of what she was saying. <laughs> yes, you feel you've been cast yes. in a poor light. Yeah. <laughs> oh. Okay. It's a good episode, isn't it? Yes, it is. Solid. Very. Agreed. Then, uh, once again, we thank everybody for tuning in, for listening as we go through this uh, saga of Babylon 5. Uh, again, uh, next episode, and now for a word. So when you get the chance to watch that uh, before listening to the episode, and we will thank you. Uh, again, uh, please stop by uh, b5audioguide.com or uh, check us on Twitter and Tumblr if you have things to share and want to talk. And until next time, this is Shannon and Durham. Chip and Durham. And Erica and Edmonton. And you've been listening to the audio guide to Babylon 5. <laughs>